Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. I hope you've had a great week. Special to uh, have time with family and and to stop how busy we are and think about how blessed we are. And we sang many songs this morning thinking about that and giving thanks to God. Uh, what a blessing it is to see Miss Mary Frances out this morning. Her smile is as big as ever. And when you see her, uh, she just absolutely lights up the room. And I don't know how many weeks it's been, Miss Mary Frances, since you've been here, but it sure is good to see you this morning and family with her. I want to talk to us this morning about where we are in the world. And I want us to think about how we have so many things to be thankful for in the midst of unsettling times. I think we all, over the last few weeks and months, have in one way or another asked the question, how does God feel about all this? Or what's going to happen? Or will that turmoil that is in part of the world remain contained to that part of the world? I think it's appropriate this morning for us to realize how blessed we are, number one, but also in this week of Thanksgiving to look at what really matters in the eyes of God and what should really matter in the eyes of ourselves. And so it's my purpose this morning to help us to do that in this Thanksgiving week so that we will indeed see things as God wants us to see them, especially to see what a blessed people we are to serve the great God that we do. Those of us who are older than 22 or 23 years old, on the most part, will remember where we were on 9-11 of 2001. I think for most of us who are adults, we vividly remember that morning. And I remember I had begun to teach my 9 o'clock class at Fried Hardeman and was called to the president's office for us to determine how we were going to handle the events of that day. We decided to have chapel and thought that nothing better could we do on that day than to worship God and to think about the importance of spiritual things. And as the students were gathering together in the auditorium for chapel, a Channel 7 reporter from WBBJ, the ABC affiliate in Jackson, approached me and said, I would like to interview two or three students. Would you get two or three that you think would be good to interview for me to interview? And I said, sure, I will. And I remember where I was standing in the auditorium, and I remember when I looked over toward the east side of the auditorium, I saw one of our international students, a girl who was the sweetest, kindest, most humble, biggest smiling, hardworking student you can imagine, a Middle Eastern student, and I thought, she'll be perfect for this. And so I approached her and I asked her, would you be willing to be interviewed by WBBJ reporter on how you feel about what happens, what's happening today? And I'll never forget what she said. She first said to me, no, I don't need to do that. That caught me off guard. It was very uncharacteristic. And then I asked her, why 
do you not want to do that? And her words I will never forget. She said to me, I don't think you would want to hear what I would have to say. Well, that was as uncharacteristic for her in my mind as anything she could have said. And out of curiosity, I asked her, why, what would you say? She said to me, for those of us who are international students who have not lived in the United States, we're not glad at all that what's happened has happened. However, there is a sense within us of causing us to feel like, well, at least now they know how we feel all the time. Now you see why I don't forget those words. And you could see in her eyes the sincerity and the hurt for the events of that day. But you could also feel the passion of what she was saying to me being, we don't understand. And, in true, and truly, we don't. I want us to think this morning about how so many people are living in the world that we don't understand. We are living in difficult times. And if you go back 21 months to February the 24th, we, most of us remember that day that Russia invaded Ukraine. And as I tried this week to look up the number of casualties, I saw varied numbers. And in fact, one of the numbers I continued to see this past week was somewhere around half a million casualties or significant injuries. But as I was looking, I came across this third bullet that made a statement to me, and it caught my attention like never before. Newsweek reported on November the 13th of this year that Russian funding budgeted for families, Russian families, 102,700 of them, funding for those Russian families who had lost family members in military service having to do with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I guess that statement caused my attention because it caused me to think about the mothers and the fathers, the wives or maybe even the husbands, the children, and how for those 102,700 families, I expect if any of us ask any of them, is it worth it, their answer would all be the same, don't you think? Absolutely. But what's interesting is, as time has passed, and now especially with what's going on between Israel and Hamas, we don't even hear anything about this much anymore, do we? Even though it continues very much to go on. And then we come to the Israel-Hamas thing that we are seeing in the very weekend of the first group of hostages that are being released and all the questions associated with that. But this one is interesting to those of us who are followers of Jesus because when we study the history, we realize that this battle has gone on in one way or another back to Genesis chapter 15 as it involves the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael. 
And that struggle that has continued to happen that began between Sarah and Hagar, her handmaid. It's kind of interesting to me to think about how we mess up God's plan when we decide to step out of the way and do things our own way. And remember that discussion between Abraham and Sarah when Abraham said to her, I think God's not going to come through, let's do it our way. And in that moment, that decision and the implications of that decision could have in no way been understood by Abraham concerning what would be happening some approximately 4,000 years later. Well, let's look at some of what has happened. In the past 100 years, and in fact, if you do the math, actually in the past 75 years, a little longer than my lifetime, but not much, in the past 75 years, war in 1948 and 49, and then again in 86. The Six-Day War that some of us have studied in history that took place in 19, uh, what is that, 67? I should have made my fonts bigger. 1973, again, war. And then, interesting to me, as I read that in 1990s, was when the Muslims began the practice of suicide bombings. And since the early 1990s, there's no telling how many news reports we've heard of that taking place, all related to what we are seeing in the news today. In 2005, significant battle that took place. And in fact, 4,000 we see from the efforts of the two nations. And if you go back and you study that effort that President Clinton made to bring the two sides together, truthfully, historically, it only stirred things up, it seems, as we read the history of that. And then 2008, political power of Hamas began with the establishment of prime minister. So they became an organized political group. And then look at this next bullet. 2008, 2012, 2014, 2021, and now 2023. Significant hostilities. And in in CNBC reported November the 12th, just within Gaza alone, at least 18,000 Palestinians have died. Now, I've listed all these for the purpose of painting a picture for us that what that Middle Eastern student said to me on 9-11 brings a great deal of truth because the world is in a state of uproar. And for most of us, we have wondered, what's going to happen? What does God think? How does he deal with all this? Is he about ready to call an end to all of this? But look at these bullets as we consider the question, what must God be thinking? I expect at many times in the past 6,000 years, God has questioned what will they do next? Maybe even did I make a mistake? And that sounds a little difficult, except we see that in 
the text of the Old Testament where we see in the early part of Genesis revolving the flood, God repented that he had made man. And as we sit in 2023 and consider where we are in the state of the world, we might ask the question, well, has anything really changed? Because as we look at this verse from 1 John 2 and verse 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. That's been an interesting verse to me through the years because I think in one way or another, most everything that we see that is worldly from Genesis 1 until the end of the book of Revelation could be placed within those three categories of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I think what's going on today in the same way could be categorized in one of those three ways. But look at possibly a less familiar passage from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Indeed, history repeats itself. And what we see in many ways, if we study the Bible, is not much difference. And truly, we could say what's going on today is not the first time. Look at some evidence of this. 2 Chronicles 1 and verse 3. Judah with King Abijah attacked by Israel. And King Jeroboam, southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Judah defends themselves in the civil war. And 5,000, half a million Israelites are killed. God's own people. Those who are under the law of Moses. Half a million. 2 Kings 18, verse 19. Assyria, under King Sennacherib, attacks Jerusalem, southern kingdom of Judah. King Hezekiah. At night, the angel of the Lord executes all of those soldiers of the Assyrian troops. 185,000. Now, I want to stop here just for a minute as we continue and encourage each of us to not get past the realness of what we're reading and the impact. And in fact, I will, in an effort to encourage us to do that, say to each of us that I believe God created every Israeli and every Palestinian and every Ukrainian and every Russian and every Assyrian, just as he did you and me. And if we were to try to place some numeric value on each of our lives, the number that we would assign to ourselves would probably be very different in our own minds to those in other parts of the country today or in other generations. But in God's eyes, there is no difference. The tragedy of half a million people who died in this battle is no less in God's eyes than if half a million people wind up dying as a result of the current day events. Now to me that says 
okay, things were pretty serious. And when you look back at those numbers and make them more than just a story that we read about, passing over the verse that gives us the number in two or three seconds or less, we can see some serious events have happened. Judges chapter 20, following the mistreatment, actually the molestation of a priest's wife, Eleven tribes battle against the tribe of Benjamin who did this absurd thing. And 140,000 died. First Kings chapter 20, Israel's King Ahab in a single day kills 100,000 Syrian soldiers under the leadership of Ben-Hadad. And then 27,000 flee, but later they die. Second Chronicles 28, Israel, King Pekah. Enters civil war with Judah, King Ahaz. 120,000 of Ahaz's troops are killed in a single day. 2 Samuel 24, after King David initiates a census to measure the number of soldiers, after he counts the size of his army by numbering the troops, through disgust, God takes 70,000 lives for David's decision. Now, it's not war, but it's tragedy. Now, I need to stop at this point and apologize to Tina because when she asked me what I was speaking on, she said, please don't make it depressing, and I'm sorry. (laughs) At this point, it's a little depressing, but the lesson and the story are not over. Do you wonder if we have a false sense of security? Living in America, we know that we have our nuclear bombs in the ground that can open up at any moment. We have, we know, we know that we have our intelligence in the sky with cameras on every part of the earth. We know that we have power, but is it possible that's a false sense of security? Even the near 3,000 who died in 9-11 don't seem to be significant in terms of numbers when we compare to the loss of lives in other generations and in other cultures. However, I think that there's a symbolic representation of our sense of security to what in psychology we call the personal fable. And the personal fable is the principle that young people, teenagers especially, and young adults feel like bad things will not happen to them. We sometimes read that Young people don't feel like they have to wear a motorcycle helmet because they're not going to have a wreck or their seat belt or they can smoke because lung cancer will not come to them. And all of us can understand that principle because in one way or another until we progress on in life and difficult things start coming our way, we all have some sense of those things happen to other people and not to us. And in the same way, I think those of us who live in the greatest country in the world truly can have a false sense of security, don't you? I think it's possible that we may think, well, we're big and we're bad and nothing could happen. But the question is relevant. Does history repeat itself? Because historically, the greatest countries, the greatest powers of all time have always fallen at some point eventually. Does that get your attention? It does mine. I'm concerned for grandchildren. I'm concerned for children. 
I don't worry too much about that, quite frankly. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But, yeah, it's quite likely to me that we have a pretty strong sense of security in things that we think matter, but in a way it really doesn't. Why? Well, let's continue. What does the Bible have to say? And at this point, if I were to quit, yeah, it'd be pretty depressing, but let's don't quit. What does the Bible have to say? First of all, God never promised life to be fair. And I'm presenting a concept here. And that concept is that good things or bad things happen to good people. And we have to go through things sometimes we don't deserve or sometimes that are not fair. Sometimes that were random. Sometimes that were decision caused. Matthew 5 Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, He causes the rain to come to the just and the unjust. There's a principle there that not everything that happens is correlated to our decisions, whether good or bad. I will say, however, that there are consequences when we don't stay close to God. For example, when we get away from God and do it our own way, we do things that sometimes have very negative consequences, sometimes the loss of life. And while God's principle is that we cannot directly correlate good times with doing well and bad times with not doing well, it is the case that sometimes consequences of poor decisions are the result of bad things happening because of our own actions. I would ask this question for you. Do you think it's possible for life to get too easy? So much of our relationship with God can be better understood to me when I understand or look at it as the relationship between a parent and a child, a father and his children, or a mother and her children. Because we all know from the parental standpoint what children would grow up to be if we let them always have their way. If they always got everything they wanted, if everything was always easy. And when I do parenting seminars, I talk about how important it is to let children go through difficulty. So when they get to be adults, they will have experienced things that are hard and difficult. And I think in a very similar way, God realizes that if we're not careful, things can get too easy for our own good to the point that we don't rely on Him. We trust more on ourselves, as we'll look at in a moment, we don't long for heaven nearly as much. And I like the way Gary Thomas stated it in his series on uh, holy uh, marriage when he said, God's purpose for us is not to make us happy, but it's to make us holy. God's purpose is not to make us happy, but it's to make us holy. Now, I expect most of you, I expect all of you are exactly like me because I would pray to God, God, send whatever you need to my way to get me home with you in heaven eternally. But please do it the easy way. <laughs> That's the way we feel, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I don't, it's been a long time, if ever, that I've seen a child go running up to a parent and say, 
to them, please whip me, please, please whip me. I know it's for my own good. <laughs> we don't do that, do we? And we're not going to do that with God either. But in the same way that we as parents knew sometimes that those children needed to go through difficulty so that they would become what we wanted them to become, I expect in a much larger sense, God does the same. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, the Hebrews writer said, God chastens the son that he loves. Why? I think for exactly what we're talking about. But let's look at a different principle from the Bible. God hates division in any context. God hates division. And we might start with religious division. And from Proverbs chapter 6, one of the seven things that the Lord hates is those that cause discord or contention. One that soweth discord, especially among the brethren. God hates division. He doesn't want us divided. He doesn't want others divided. But oh how frustrated he must be with us. I saw a figure this week from Wesleyan University's School of Biblical Studies where they provided research that suggested among the world there are 33,700 Christian denominations. Now, I don't even know how that's possible. As a former researcher, I would kind of like to look into that research and say, all right, what are the terms of this research? But whatever that number, it's large. We know that. And to think about the division that exists, God hates division. God hates family division. We hate family division. How often I see how ugly that can be downstairs. God hates division. But what about this one, political division? Do you think God hates that division too? Well, I think so. If you go back to what Lincoln said around the time of the Civil War and the frustration and the strong feelings about slavery or not, Lincoln made a statement that truthfully is not original to him when he said in 1858, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now that statement scares me, but not because Lincoln said it, but because Jesus said it in Matthew 12 and 12, 25, when he said, every kingdom divided against itself shall be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. That scares me. Why? Well, I've often had the thought, I believe our country has never been more divided politically than it is now. However, I expect if Lincoln were here, once again, he would say, history repeats itself, knowing my day it was pretty bad too. Do you ever get tired of hearing the phrase across the aisle? <laughs> I do. In fact, I'm in favor of removing the aisle. Why? Because God hates division. Now, I want to twist things on us just a moment to say that I think we have a responsibility too. Because it could be very easy for me to transition right to the next point. And us leave this point thinking about how bad those politicians are. But what about us? 
What about our part? Do we have responsibility here? Yeah, I believe we do. I believe we have responsibility to not be divisive. I think we have responsibility to look for common areas, to promote common areas, to not be one that even dis sows discord among the nation. And it might just be that if we as individuals did a better job of standing up and reaching out to commonality instead of divisiveness, that things might change. Not a whole lot I can do about taking that all out. But there are some things I can do about what I say and how I feel. And what about this last point? Don't you think what we're talking about this morning is pride? Man, if you think about the Russian leaders, the Ukrainian leaders, if you think about Israel and Hamas, if you think about the difference between the parties in our country today, how much of what happens is due to pride that takes place? I think if we did that survey, we all would rank pretty highly on, yeah, there's a lot of pride in positions of power. But once again, are we doing a good job of being careful to check our own pride? When we get to the point that we think we know it, when we get to the point that we think we have it figured out, when we get to the point that we want to talk more than we want to listen, it may be that our level of pride is very comparable at a different place to those of our leaders. Oh, how we need to be careful with that. Point number three, which I think is the biggest in all of this, is for us to remember in all of what we're seeing happening in our world today, this world's simply not my home. It's one of my greatest challenges. Why? Because I'm attached to my things. I'm attached to my farm. If you were to ask me where is my farm, I'd tell you real quickly. I wouldn't say, well, God's farm that he's loaning me is on South Cross Bridges Road. <laughs> but you know, when I'm gone, it's not going to take very long for the England and Sun Farm sign to come down, unless Sun continues it. It's not going to take very long for that tractor to be sold or that piece of equipment to be sold and to have somebody else's name on it and be in somebody else's barn. Why? This world is not my home. And look again at that passage in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Oh boy, that'd be a hard place to stop and think about right now. To what degree do I love the world? Ooh, uh, let's go on quick, right? For the lust of the age, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That's what is involved in all these things when we become too attached to this world. And I've put on the slide before you, this is a very age-related thing. Why? Well, because it's hard for us to see the unseen when we're younger. It's hard for us not to become so attached when we're younger. It's hard for us not to think of things more than we ought to. But you know what? God in all his wisdom, has a way of maturing us, doesn't he? The older we get, the more God places, I believe, discomfort in our lives to remind us this world is not my home. And some of you have gone through a lot of learning in that way. 
That's why we see older people who can say, in all peace, I'm ready to go on. That's why those people who have very few days left don't think nearly as much about the color of their house or the year of their car. How much money is in that banking account? Why? Because as we, as we mature, we understand how important it is to do a, good, a better job of disconnecting with worldly things. But I can't just talk about this one without saying, so what do we do about it? What do we do to help ourselves to be less attached? Number one, we talk of heaven. The more we talk about it, the more real it becomes. And I wanted to put on this point, we need to do a good job of talking to our children about heaven so they'll understand. And then I thought, forget that. We need to be talking to ourselves, don't we? Why? Because we're so very attached. But a second thing we can do is do a better job of focusing on other, others because the more we focus on this life and what it can give to us, the easier it is for Satan's hold to be on us when it comes to this world materialism. And then number three, I wrote down the idea of rethink your hope. What do I mean by that? If I were to ask you today, what do you spend most time hoping for? What would it be for a young couple? It might be to become pregnant. For an individual, it might be to achieve this position in his or her career. It might be for us to finally get that piece of land or for us to have this equipment or that. Maybe we just need to stop and rethink our hope. And think more about the hope that really matters. And number four, this week of Thanksgiving, even with all the turmoil in the world, we have so much to be thankful for. Oh, how much we have to be thankful for. And if we look at what we've just gone through, I think it's appropriate for us to say, we don't have to worry too much. As difficult as things can be, it's still in God's hands. He has this. If we believe that and trust Him and know that He will take care of us, then everything will be okay. And then there's gravy on top when we realize, yeah, but even in the midst of that, oh, how God blesses us. Our week of Thanksgiving has been very different from the week of Thanksgiving for a lot of people in this world. You want to just stop and think about that for a moment? Yeah, it has. Oh, how thankful we should be and look at some of these ways that we can be thankful for specifically. Our material blessings, based on the world standards, there's not a person in this auditorium this morning that's not wealthy. Pretty true. I believe completely true. What about the blessing of freedom? You know, when I parked this morning across the way and got out of my truck and walked across the parking lot, I didn't think for the first time about anybody coming and arresting me for walking in this building. <laughs> I just didn't have to think that. Nor did you think that, I expect. Why? Wow, blessing of freedom that so many in the world don't have. What about peace? Well, that one's very timely based on what's going on. And we need to be thankful that we live where we do and have the peace that we have. 
Because if we didn't have it, we'd sure be thankful to get it back. What about health? I thought as I put this in my notes this week about some who are here this morning and some who are not, who would rather for me to do nothing more than to stand before you and say, if you're healthy, tell God thank you. Because they're wrestling with significant health issues. And if we're healthy, we need to tell God thank you and not wait for it to be taken from us for us to appreciate it. What about family? I see so many that are lost. I see so many that have strife, division. And again, if they were to tell me to say anything to you this morning, it would be hug your kids, your grandkids, your spouses, your parents. Love your family. Keep that family united. God hates division for good reason because it hurts. And what about this last one? Oh, there are many places in the world today where there are 10 people or less in worship. And we come into this auditorium with 400 or so and the singing is so good and the facility is so good and the family, the church family is so very good. Oh, how much we have to be thankful for. And as I bring this to a close this morning, I want to remind us that we're not just waiting for our reward. Because if we are children of God, the reward has already begun. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now remember, let me stop for a minute, remember who Peter wrote to and what the state of events were in his day. He basically wrote to people who were being persecuted, some to the point of having their lives taken, burned at the stake, put in the Colosseum with angry animals. And he tells them, I know you have joy. Why? Because you're children of God. Because you can turn whenever you want to to the Creator and speak to Him and make requests of Him. Because He provides you peace and joy if you stay close to Him. Look at verse 9. Peter said, Why is this true? For you are receiving the endless result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The reward of being children of God has already begun. And in hard times, in difficult times, in times of division, in times of loss of life, in times of poor health, in times of tragedy in so many different ways, God still has us in His hand, under His care. We're okay. All things will work together for good to those who love God eventually. Doesn't mean things are always easy. Doesn't mean there will never be difficulty. But if we're His, things are good. So, are we thankful? I hope so. This morning, we offer the opportunity. If you're not yet a child of God, you can make this the day of your life by putting on Christ, being baptized, baptized having your sins washed away. Maybe that you just need the prayers of this great family of God. If you need to come today, we encourage you to do so. While together we stand and sing. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. And give you peace. And give you peace. And give you peace. The Lord merit His face to shine upon.
Jesus.